The Leftovers, Season 2, Episode 6, Lens is over, and I'm really sad that it's over because it was awesome, but we're just getting started here on Post Show Recaps, talking about that terrific episode of television. I'm Josh Wiggler. I'm joined here by the man who is uh, the mortal instrument of the demon Azrael, Antonio Mazzaro. Is that right? Did I get you correct on that? Sure, if that's what you want to call me, that's fine. No, I The introduction was right. That was on the money. I mean, yeah, I guess so. That's just one of many things that you could say about me, sure. Yeah, please allow you to introduce yourself. Yes, I'm a man of wealth and, and fame or whatever. Yeah, yeah, like this is, I know, I what I am, Josh, is just somebody who's trying to bury a bird in a box and make a couple wishes in the, in the meantime. Oh, man, that's what we're always trying to do on this podcast, I feel like. Yeah, I think that's true. I, every episode of our podcast so far has been a bird buried in a box. But and, what I mean is, like, by birds, I mean it in, like, the 1960s slang sense, because that's what we did in upstate New York. For, like, British women? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It, the upstate New York thing is gone. It's done. It's dead. Everyone knows. Everyone knows what happened. Everyone well, I mean, it's because that. Patty's been following people around telling them. I know. Amazing. Antonio, enough with the jokes. This episode was amazing. The Leftover Season 2, it's real. The hype is real. Every episode, I think, has been top-notch. And I think, gun to my head, this is the best of the lot. Episode six, Lens. Your your thoughts? Boom. Oh, wow. Best of the lot. You mean I the entire so. series or this season? I don't know. It's a, it's in the conversation. I think uh, the, the you know you throw a Nora Durst centric episode six of any season of the leftovers so far of both seasons, and they are dynamite episodes. And I don't know. I mean, I I am uh, about two hours removed from watching the episode at this point, but nothing has punched me in the face the way that that episode has in a way that wasn't. It didn't leave me stunningly depressed or anything like that, but it left me stunned and in awe of the performances on the screen. The work from Regina King and uh, Carrie Coon as, as Erica and Nora is that was, that was some of the, that especially the end of this episode was among the most top notch pieces of acting that I've seen on anything, let alone the leftovers. I thought that this episode was spectacular. I thought it was really, really great. And I've been feeling very good about season two so far, but after that episode, I am feeling phenomenal about season two. I just feel like it's, really just out of this world television right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, there's very little I can say to disagree with you. And this one, it just seems like week to week, the bar is raised and raised and raised. And the bar is already so high by everything that this show has done already. But yet this one really found a way, I think, uh, to exceed it on almost every level. It's uh, yeah, It's interesting because for a show with so many questions and with the great setup of not expecting a lot of answers, we did get a fair amount of answers this episode, uh, but it didn't, to me, detract from the show, uh, just like not getting them in previous episodes hasn't detracted from those episodes. Uh, it is a good mix of mystery and answer, I think, that always drives these Damon Lindelof shows forward. Uh, and so I wasn't surprised to get a lot of answers while we're still kind of entertaining some underlying questions and mystery but I, I'm, I'm hopeful that they're not kind of firing all the bullets in their gun because they're thinking that season two may be it. If they want to make season three, I want them to be able to make season three. Um, and we did get a lot of answers here. That said, a lot of these answers we already heard from Reza Aslan before they shut him down. I, <laughs> sure, yeah. I think we now know why they shut him down, I'd say. Yeah, he's going to spoil the whole season. Shut it down, Reza. But yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely with the, with the, with the answers things. And, and I think that a lot of that, I mean, look, do we really take 
take uh, the Azrael thing as an answer, or is that color in the universe of the leftovers? So I think that it's you know it's a it's a delicate line of things that are answered seriously, and then questions that are being raised and asked that are kind of a little, if not quite tongue in cheek. Then you know at least things that I don't think that you have to take super seriously unless we're taking that stuff seriously i don't know you and i haven't done any sort of preamble before we started hitting record so i don't know what your take is on any of that i suppose we'll dive into it and find out but i don't know i I just thought that this was great and i think that that's the consensus right now um you know we posted on postshowrecaps.com a spot a landing page for questions ahead of this podcast and we just got this this great you know kind of summary comment from ryan oakley who said when is the last time you guys saw a stretch of six episodes this brilliant and this consistent it's blowing my mind even breaking bad the genius and game of thrones have the occasional quote-unquote dips um and yeah for me i know that some people didn't love the reverend matt episode this season uh for for one example but i i think that everything has been consistently brilliant this season yeah um, i do too i do too. you know maybe fargo season one was was this consistently brilliant perhaps um yeah i i don't know that it's such a rarity but i think maybe what is rare is when we started the leftovers Back in the early, early days of season one, we saw potential as opposed to seeing true, true spectacular results. Uh, and that's what we're getting this season. So rather than it's necessarily super rare, I think it's just, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful surprise. Yeah. And I think that the, the proof is in the pudding in some respects because the first season, the weakest parts were by far the parts with Tommy and Christine and Holy Wayne and the baby and all of the stuff that wasn't happening in Mapleton that wasn't related really to the characters that were in Mapleton. And yet we got an episode that focused entirely on Laurie and Tommy and the kind of uh, after effects of the guilty remnant, the things there. And it was, it popped. It was huge. It was a great episode. In fact, the end of that episode, people are still talking about it It as one of the craziest and best and most emotional moments of the season for them. So even the stuff that was weak in season one, uh, I think found a place in season two here to root and be really strong and continue to be intriguing as it was kind of hinted at in this episode. So right. even the show's weak points where it was uneven in the first season because they did a little too much focus on these things, I feel like they got smaller, they got sharper, they got smarter. They stopped doing the teenager stuff. They stopped doing kind of the micro world and they, they put it in this very localized place in Jarden, Texas. And then they said, okay, let's take and establish a great sense of place and see what we can do with that. And what we've seen, how how that's played out has been great. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there was a, there's a great recap of the episode over at the AV club. Uh, and the headline is the leftovers just won't stop kicking the rest of television's ass. Uh, and it has a great introductory paragraph that I, that I will paraphrase. I won't read the whole thing. I thought of you when I read that. I really did. It's so great. It it starts and I'll, I'll censor, I'll censor the, the curse words, but it's woo, this effing show. I hate to be hysterical about it, but the leftovers is absolutely absolutely clowning the rest of television in this quantum leap of a second season. I don't think quantum leap in the Rob Sester Nito sense. No. Uh, it's doing monster or truck wheel. Yeah, it's do- or Scott Bakula. It's doing monster truck wheelies over the competition. There's been a lot of amazing television in 2015, but with every new episode of The Leftovers comes the very real possibility of seeing a top 10 episodes list violently upended. This much is certain. If you're an actress on a television drama with plans to lobby for one of next year's Outstanding Actress in a Drama Emmy Awards, and the name of your show is not The Leftovers, your target is getting, is getting narrower by the week. Maybe don't even think too hard about the Emmys next year. Maybe submit something, maybe not, whatever, but release the stress of the whole thing, you know? 
I once interviewed John Slattery after one of his Mad Men nominations, and he said on the morning the Emmy nods were announced, he was out surfing rather than home pacing. Now imagine, what if instead of surfing to take your mind off the Emmy nominations, you were just surfing? There's plenty of time for lessons. Just give it some thought, because after Lens, both of those races now have clear front runners in Carrie Coon and Regina King. Um, and then later on Tough in time. this, yeah, and then later on in this article, uh, it's talking about how, uh, the leftovers is operating on a different level. There's so much depth, detail, thought, and love poured into each episode. In the season premiere, there were so many tiny, tiny flickers of detail. Erica's bird in the box, the squirrely dude collecting water at the spring, the woman cutting her grass in a wedding gown, and the man randomly, ex- I, I don't know, exsanguinating a goat in the middle of a casual dining establishment. Those tiny details seemed thoughtful even when it seemed like most of it would wind up being window dressing to see those ideas incorporated in the story in such a seamless way is kind of astonishing even people who haven't quite warmed to the leftovers have to concede that this is some of the most interesting and significant television of the year and if you're an actress who is not in it i'm not saying give up on your dreams i'm just saying maybe give up on your dreams I feel the same way. Cosine. Yeah, cosine. Cosine, cosine. Yeah, written by uh, Joshua Alston. From one Josh to another, I I concur. I concur. However, we have another comment on PostShowRecaps.com from our good friend Geek Furious who says, how many episodes will this, how many Emmys will this episode get? And I think probably, you know, none. You know, because I think The Leftovers is going to be overlooked and I think that's going to be total BS, but I think that that's probably just the fate of the show. Yeah, I think that that's true. Um, And it's not a genre show. It's not necessarily in a realm that's typically overlooked and HBO is pretty good about getting their people nominations but HBO also has a lot of mouths to feed and a lot of accounts to service and certainly there are some higher profile HBO shows that will probably get a lot more love and respect in that regard I guess it remains to be seen but certainly the merit is there it's unquestionable that the merit is there it's the merit it's more than merit I mean it's it's just it's it's that there are, I agree with the surfing comment. Let's just put it that way. Like yeah. it is, it's that level of, of achievement that's going on comparatively, uh, to a lot of, or most of what else is on television. So kudos to these two, especially in this episode. Yeah, no, really, really great stuff. Uh, and I, and I know that this episode right from the jump hooks in my good friend Antonio Mazzaro, uh, with, with a, with a great, you know, the music choices all season long have been spectacular. But if they really were like, if you were on the fence, which you haven't been, Antonio, if they really just wanted to woo you all the way, they did it. They pulled it off. And I'd like you to tell everybody why. Yeah, I lost my mind. I even tweeted about it, including profanity, which is uh, I usually try to refrain from that on Twitter. So as to keep it PG-13. So as to keep appearances. Yes. Yes. Uh, no, they, they began with a song from uh, Kentucky's own Jim James, the front man of My Morning Jacket. It's my favorite band. It's my favorite musician. Uh, I love this song. It's the title track. Uh, or not the title track. It's the first track off of his solo album that came out a couple of years ago. It's called State of the Art, and it is absolutely about uh, how people should be connected to the world around them and how technology is used for that, but also a barrier for that. Uh, it's really just kind of great stuff. And, of course, I think it's fairly haunting. Jim James is known for his sort of ethereal, haunting voice. They did an entire episode of American Dad uh, based solely around the fact that Jim James has this kind of voice is of that, an angel. Really? Yes, That's true. They absolutely he, did. I, have, I mean, I know my morning jacket is is fantastic and everything, but is it big enough for Seth MacFarlane to dedicate an episode to? Yeah, they uh, really. The, somebody in that writers' room is a big fan, I guess. So they That's made great. a my morning jacket Jim James based episode of American Dad, uh, and you know, so that's that's the way it goes and. 
you'll see this music popping up on uh, a lot of different shows. He's kind of a major label artist, so the major labels do sell their artists, but uh, it's really like they're picking right out of my wheelhouse here with Irish Dement. You know, anytime you can transition from Jim James into Irish Dement, you're you're doing me a lot of favors personally in terms of my taste. So I was very pleased with this choice. And I, you know, it wasn't, I don't know, you have to tell me how you felt at the beginning because I was too removed from anything that was going on to make any kind of connection other than the fact that the guy that was coming into the town was seeing some of the things that we've seen over and over, like the goat guy, like the wedding dress that come right. to, come to bear later in this episode. I didn't notice too much else about this guy, except I thought he looked a little like Coach Ben Wade. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently his name is uh, Joaquin Quarto. Uh, I had to go back and watch the episode with closed captioning. And at first I thought that his name was Joaquin Quattro, which would have been interesting because I give this episode Joaquin Quattro out of Quattro Stars. Yeah, it's baby. Funny. It's a Quattro Star episode for sure. Quattro Star episode for sure. Uh, but yeah, Joaquin Quarto, he is he is this scientist who seems to be really into the whole lensing idea. Um, I, I didn't know what to think. I mean, he seemed like some sort of Ghostbuster, some sort of scientist, uh, some sort of, you know, losty and weirdness going on. I know a lot of people, I think maybe it was Alan Seppenwall, somebody wrote about how, like, there were serious Desmond vibes off of this guy, uh, which I definitely, I definitely got, but it, it, it felt like between him and what we're going to get out of, um, out of, uh, George Brevity later on Pretty and Dr. 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 Allison Hebert, who's the blocked call that's that's constantly calling Nora in this episode. It feels like some sort of poltergeist crew was going to be converging uh, on Miracle, if not in this episode, then maybe coming up. But I don't know. It was yeah. just it was it was a very bizarre sequence of events and a, a very strange kind of jarring way to to start this look into Jardin in this episode. Well, and it begins with him on the phone arguing about correlation or causality versus correlation. He's arguing right. with someone on the phone, like you can tell me correlation all the time, correlation. I need causation. And he's got the article of the three girls up on kind of a whiteboard with a bunch of mathematics there written. And it's not a hundred percent clear exactly what he's after, but it is clear that he's focused on these girls and there may be a little bit more to him than meets the eye. And you say, yeah, there's some sort of team of like psychic ghostbusters and it's not like one of them can see ghosts and uh, one of them is a scientist. It's not a team uh, that we may have seen on another show before, but I got, you know, the Faraday vibes are there. If you want to make a Damon Lindelof connection, I think that you sure. should say he has the long hair like Desmond might. And he's a little wild eyed, um, maybe a little bit congenial, uh, but a little bit too kind of focused on what he's doing at the task at hand. And so there's a lot of that going on. Um, Alan Seppenwall actually wrote that he got the uh, Desmond vibe off of him because he believed that the voice on the phone was uh, was Penny, was Penny from Lost. And that may well be the case. Uh, if, it yeah. is, if it is, we're going to see her, aren't we? You got to imagine that we would. But yeah, that sounded like Sonia Walger's voice uh, as Dr. Allison, who keeps calling Nora. Uh, I was, I, I'm firmly, yes, Penny's voice on that. Uh, I'm firmly team Penny on that. That sounded absolutely like her. Um, and that would be great. It would be great. And she's like the perfect person to pull from the lost rogues gallery of actors that isn't like, is recognizable, but isn't, you know, it's not like having Evan, Evangeline Lilly on the show or even Dominic Monaghan or somebody who, or Jorge Garcia who would be so recognizably lost to pull from. I feel like pulling Penny into the mix, that feels good. We are, that feels right. Yeah, we already have like a Matt, uh, and he is actually a shepherd, so he's sort of a hybrid there. Right. So we really can't, we don't need to pull from the top. But yeah, you're right. This She would be a good one to pull from. It would be interesting to see how she plays in. I think, though, that the we, we talked about this just a, a mite before we jumped on the air. 
correlation does not imply causation or causality versus correlation. That debate, that the scientists, the first things you really hear at the beginning of this episode, I think that that sort of sets the stage for everything we see play out with Nora uh, and with Erica in this episode and a lot of what Nora has clearly been struggling with since the departure. And so I I think that that can't go unspoken really that that – this, the theme of the episode, and in fact, the theme of a lot of what is going on, maybe was loosely stated right there at the top. Right, absolutely. And I mean, you're going to get it in, and again, we always jump around, but you're, you're going to get it in, in the final scene between Nora and Erica, where Nora is going to call Erica's reasoning pathetic, and like, I, you blaming yourself, that's pathetic. You know, the one thing we get in this world is that, like, we're not the ones that are responsible for this, but you don't know how much she believes it. And it's, it's hard to, you know, to put yourself in Nora's shoes and wrap your head around that concept of, it's not my fault, it's not my fault, without feeling like, oh man, she's got to feel like it's her fault somehow. Um, and to, to constantly tell yourself correlation does not equal causation. I did not necessarily cause this. I didn't cause this, but it looks kind of damning, you know, and I think that that's sort of the, you know, that's like the second part of correlation does not equal causation. It's really, you know, just because it correlates doesn't mean that's what's caused this thing. However, you know, there's a however attached to it. And I think that that's another piece of this episode as well. Well, yeah. And, and correlation does not imply causation is, uh, is sort of almost a hypo- hypothesis based scientific, uh, philosophical, logical maxim. It's very much rooted in, uh, thought and, and not emotion. Uh, it's the opposite of emotion. Emotion is what makes you believe that it does cause that. And here we have Nora Durst, who's clearly an intelligent person and clearly capable of putting a lot of things together such that she's been put in high roles by the Department of Sudden Departures and she sniffed a lot of high-level people out because she can kind of take herself away from it. Right. But but she's carrying around a lot of emotion. And uh, I took some notes uh, in my notes the second time I watched it uh, throughout uh, where this kind of played up. So we'll hit it as we go along for sure. Cool. Awesome. Uh, but yeah, we see Dr. Joaquin who is coming and he, he goes to, to Erica's house and he's, you know, very short with her. He just takes a, a photo of her basically, or he's like scoping her. I don't even know what he was doing there. Some weird little uh, tool. He just yeah. aims at her and presses a button. Yeah, his little demon busting tools. Yes. I don't know. I yeah. mean, we know that he's a demon buster, which is just a great idea for this world. Anyway, we'll get into that. Um, but he goes over to Nora's house and is very short with her. And it's like, did you touch this woman next door? Did you touch Evie? Did you do any of this, this stuff? Were you in physical contact on the day of the departure? And Nora just like kicks the dude's tools, kicks this toolbox, his toolbox right off of the porch. <laughs> and like, what, what, what did this guy expect? You know, you gotta like have a little bit of a hi, how you doing to you? Uh, rather than just, you know, showing up and shoving crap in somebody's face. This was not going to work out for Dr. Walkie. No, this guy's a real tool bag in that regard, right? He just, just running onto people's personal property and jumping all up in their area and like shooting stuff at them and asking them a bunch of probing questions and setting up machines and devices to run over their bodies. I mean, come on, dude, like chill out. Is that even ethical? You know, doesn't that feel like an ethics violation? Don't you have to get permissions and stuff like that before you can just start setting up on somebody's lawn? You would think, but again, I. What's interesting to me about this is I don't have like the demonologist ethics handbook. <laughs> it's uh, you need to go just. It's at the back end. It's an appendix in Tobin's Spirit Guide. Got it. Okay. So you just need to check that out. Um, it's you, you have a copy of that, right? 
No, but you can send me one, I think. Oh, okay, perfect. You've yeah, got you've it. got a Prime account. You can just Prime it to me. Right? I will Prime it to you. All yep. right, cool. And so, yeah, once you figure that out, you'll be good to go. But yeah, he, you can apply for some permits. It was interesting to me because in that interest, that opening sequence, he basically gives the middle finger to the park officials. Like, I'm not running my tools through your machine, and I'm here for research. And he just kind of waltzes right under their property. It's like... Dude, this miracle, again, yet again, audit miracle. Like, it's so easy for somebody to just waltz in here. It's unbelievable. The security problem is really fairly serious. And it, it is by far and away the biggest critique of the season so far. Yeah, we just need to audit miracle and then we'll be good to go. It's not great. It's not great. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's the first and last we see of, uh, Mr. Quarto, Quattro, as I like to call him. Um, what, what did you think of the significance? I mean, we're, we're playing, we're playing some Jim, Jim James across. It's Jim James, not Jim Jones. I always want to say Jim Jones. I'm wrong, right? You're wrong. Yeah. yeah. You've been drinking the Kool-Aid on that one. Deeply, deeply wrong. Uh, Jim James, we're listening to that. That's a very significant, uh, artist for you. What's your take in terms of what we're supposed to take away from that song playing over this guy's little journey? You know, this guy that we're maybe we'll see again at some point down the line. But if we don't, what was your take on on how all of this uh, correlated with one another? Uh, and not cause is what you're saying? Well, maybe it caused. I don't cause know. However, correlated. well, it's, it is interesting because um, because it, it the way it all plays out uh, is we see this guy and we don't really know anything about him. We just see him bringing the we see him doing scientific things in his lab. We see him bringing some tools in. We see him making his way in with the pilgrims and looking at everything uh, that that goes on um, that that's really playing. And I don't know. It's um, what what the video for state of the art and the song, the video for state of the art is this kind of weird person with a television head walking through the streets in California uh, and all the kind of unusual things that the, that thing is seeing. Uh, but the, the lyrics are really, I mean, they're, they're really kind of key verse that, that gives the song its title. It's just, I use, I use a state of the art technology supposed to make for better living, but are we better human beings? We've got our wires all crossed. Our tubes are all tied and I'm starting to remember, and I'm straining to remember, uh, just what it means to be alive. And I think that, um, I think that it's interesting that you've got this scientist who is trying to find a scientific explanation for human things. And the science may be getting in the way of understanding, uh, what truly happened or it may be leading people down the wrong path. And I think that ultimately the song more than anything and, um, the, I'll get going a little deeper on this that, uh, the album that this song was from is, based on a graphic novel, the first ever graphic novel, actually, uh, which I believe is called God's Lonely Man. Uh, okay. And it's a wood, it's woodcut based. So all the pictures in the book are woodcuts. Uh, and this particular uh, song is about a man, I think, who has traveled from the wilderness or some area outside getting his first exposure to like a metropolis-like city and being really taken aback by all of the technology and all the lights and everything and all the sound and how it's sort of interrupting and interfering. And the last part of the song, which is what plays right before the song ends in the show, uh, is like the power's going out. I mean, the power, the power's going out. Like technology is, is ruining us uh, and interfering with what the fundamental power in the world is. And so I do think that's interesting now that we know that guys that this great ghostbuster, uh, what is his deal? Like, is he using the technology to get in the way of the human element? Uh, is he using the technology to try to provide an answer for the spiritual, for the divine, for the universal? I think that that's pretty fascinating because in this episode we have, uh, the article from scientific American, right? Yeah. Or is it Popular Mechanics? I can't. I don't remember, remember which one, but yeah. Yeah, but it's a, it's a reputed scientific publication. 
and they're talking about lenses, this lens theory. And yeah, this guy and, and Penny or whoever's with him, their theory seems kind of dopey to us because they're talking about demonology. But that doesn't mean that the science behind the lensing theory is wrong, right? Right, 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 right. Yeah, there's, there's, you know, there's scientific, once again, a clash of science versus faith. You know, there's these two opposite, uh, approaches to what seems to be this agreed upon concept that is present with the, the departures or the deeps as the DSD likes to call them. Um, you know, that there's this, there's this scientific explanation possibly that it's ultraviolet related, or there is the extreme faith driven idea of, well, you've been possessed by the demon Azrael and that sucks. Let's, let's do something about that. Um, yeah. But and, yeah. And it's po- so it is possible that there is a scientific explanation to the departure. There probably is a scientific explanation to the departure, but it doesn't seem like at the time anyone is really capable of figuring it out. Uh, and I think that that's interesting because we've talked about on this podcast a lot, that first scene from the first episode and how to the people, specifically the woman who lived, um, the cave being covered up, the earthquake, there's a scientific explanation for all of that with plate tectonics and everything that goes into the science of why earthquakes happen. But that lady wouldn't have known any of it. And so even though there was a scientific explanation, it was beyond her ability to grasp. And so it seems possible that maybe we are making some progress toward a scientific explanation for the departure, but people aren't really capable of grasping it. And so the science, the technology, the information that's present is really just creating a lot of discord and a lot of um, a, a lot of just noise that is getting in the way of the true answer and also getting in the way of uh, anybody really kind of figuring out what the ultimate truths are. And I think that that um, is a little bit of connected to why the song is in there. I think that does play out a little bit here. Um, Nora gets a great laugh, uh, kind of a relieved laugh about the demon Azrael and that whole story. Uh, but the fact of the matter is it doesn't change anything about how the lens theory could still be correct. And, you know, we'll, we'll hit it a little bit later, but the lady even says, like, this is where our research is divisive. Like, because we believe in the demon, we're outsiders. You know what I mean? And that doesn't mean the lens thing is wrong. So I think that that's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, I think so too. Um, so we have, we have this whole scene. We have this whole introduction. The, the next morning after the credits have rolled, we see Nora just standing outside of the Murphy house and she just tosses a rock through the window. That's so awesome. As, as you do. As, like I, a, I, I have. <laughs> yeah. Have you really? Definitely. Oh, man. That's yeah. great. I love it. It doesn't matter. I, I mean, the statute of limitations is run and I wasn't 18, but yeah, okay. throwing a rock so through a window good. for sure. I don't, think, I don't think I ever did. I don't think that I would be able to sleep at night. I'm such a, I'm so craven. I really am. Even in my youth, I couldn't do that. Uh, but yeah, we, we've got the scene of Nora hurtling the rock through the Murphy's living room window. Um, Erica is deaf, so she is going to have a hard time hearing that you know quite literally and we also know that john murphy just sleeps through everything yeah good so call. he so so he doesn't hear it either um but nora she's just is she just super pissed about the whole matt thing is that where this is coming from why is she doing this well and in the moment i didn't i didn't i couldn't figure it out i actually rewound it several times to even figure out if it was nora uh i wasn't sure i mean it looked like her hair and then in the next scene when she kind of walks into the kitchen and is waking mary up and everything uh she's wearing similar looking clothing but i i wasn't sure it was her to begin with uh i wasn't even 100 percent sure that was the murphy's house i thought it was but it was dawn who could really tell um right and then i thought once i realized that it was her i thought well, she probably did that because she's super mad about the whole Mary thing, for sure. That's why she did that. But, I mean, 
I don't know. There's a lot of different reads on it that I think come to bear with everything we find out later in the episode that a lot of the possibility of Evie having departed uh, rather than being, you know, kidnapped or taking herself away or whatever. Uh, if she was a secondary departure, this is bringing a lot of things to the surface for Nora that she doesn't want to deal with. And it's ruining her miracle. Uh, it's right. ruining the $3 million house that she just bought. Right. And there's probably a lot of subconscious, if not simmering, uh, anger at the Murphys over that as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the, the rest of the day, I mean, we, we started talking about this a little bit. Nora gets a phone call from Dr. Allison. Uh, we know that, or we suspect that that's Sonia Walger, which would be amazing. I'd be very happy about that. That would just make me so happy. Uh, but we also, what also would make Nora very happy is if she could get a little morning loving going on with Kevin Garvey. But that's not going to end particularly well because of leg cramps or yeah, are we right. calling those, uh, I don't know, patty legs? Yeah, patty legs. Just something going on there with patty. Patty cramps. Uh, yeah, it's getting patty wagoned for sure. Patty wagon. Yeah, this is just the patty cake. Like there's just nothing good happening in this scene for Kevin. And yeah, patty probably walked right through that door, right? Yeah. And he's wow, you're you're freaky, Kevin. You in the handcuffs? This is this is good stuff. <laughs> Kevin, Kevin, yeah, Kevin Garvey, Kevin, yeah, Kevin. Uh, what are you doing, Kevin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's fun. That's good. You know what? One thing that this episode does really, really well is the the POVs are Nora and Erica, but there's a lot going on with the other characters, and I think that they were really smart in how they showed that stuff. That that this was you know a patty free episode in terms of Ann Dowd did not show up, um, but we. We, we really felt her in the room on multiple occasions. And I think that it was a very cool way of seeing how Kevin interacts with Patty when you're not inside of Kevin's head. Uh, this was the first example of that. Obviously, the end of the episode is the best example of that, but it starts here. And I think that that's just something that this episode does really well, not just with the Kevin story, but as we alluded to also with um, with Lori and the absence of Tommy and what the hell is going on there. And I think that it's just a testament to this really interesting choice that Leftover Season 2 has made, which is we don't need to show you what's going on with every character at every moment. Um, we can gap a little bit. You can just make the mental leap that something is amiss and we will fill it in later and you know enough and we trust you enough to fill in those gaps for right now. Um, and I think that that is something that was really strong in this episode. I think it's embodied here in this would-be sex scene that's not quite a sex scene. Uh, and I think that it's present throughout the episode outside of the scene as well. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's, um, that's a symptom of a couple of things. It's a latter half of the season episode. So a lot of you, you can't just have Kevin not be crazy uh, or getting progressively worse. From, from what we've seen, but you also don't want to put Ann Dowd or Patty at kind of the forefront of this episode because you really do want it to focus on uh, what's going on with Nora and what's going on with Erica. So right. good on them for figuring out a way to make that work. And it also gives you the opportunity to see things from a slightly different perspective. And that's a, that's a kind of a nice little treat to see Kevin talking to himself uh, while he's wallpapering or to see him freaking out in this would-be sex scene here. I think that that all plays really well. Uh, and then we also kind of get this, you know, this great introduction to George, uh, right, right after this, and George is uh, George is uh, not not so popular at the Murphy House, is he? What a what a great name, George Brevity. George Brevity. <laughs> it's just incredible. Um, is he? Is is this? This is not the Freddie Rumson actor, is it? Yeah, it is. It's Joel Murray. I believe that's Bill Murray's brother. That's amazing. That's yeah, great. He's one of I, the I wasn't, I, Yeah, I wasn't a huge, huge Mad Men guy, but I, I thought I recognized him. And I'm not well versed in all of the Murray brothers. I think I've only got room in my brain for two. Uh, Brian Doyle and Bill. 
Yeah, that's about it. Yeah, I, I think Joel is the one. I'm not sure which one, but there's a funny story, and I don't even remember who it involves. But that that every time a certain person's wife, who is all, who there's an actor whose wife is an actress, and she has a sex scene in a movie, and every time that movie's on cable, one of the Murray brothers, uh, often Joel, calls up this actor and is like, "Hey, your wife's getting nailed on TV again." Yeah, <laughs> and just won't let this guy live it down. Uh, constantly calling him on the phone and making him very upset. And I think Joel Murray gets a lot of the credit for that. That's incredible. That's yeah. great. So it was nice um, to see him show up here sober, unlike uh, his appearance on Mad Men. Right, uh, not peeing himself. <laughs> yeah, well, the initial appearance, yeah. And it's just great. Uh, Nora takes an immediate interest in what this guy's doing. Uh, she tells him, you know, hey, uh, oh, where are you from? Oh, they're comparing notes. And she right. tells him where they get breakfast. Uh, and she's she's pretty curious about what this guy's up to right away, of course. Yeah, I mean, it's somebody from DSD. This is her place of work. She, you know, this is where she hails from. There's, is this where the talk of the second questionnaire starts coming up or is that at the diner? That's at the diner. Yeah, I mean, but that's obviously, that's going to really, you know, catch her interest because, uh, you know, Nora is unique. And on top of the fact that this guy is in town, not really questioning Nora, he's questioning Erica or trying to question Erica, you know, simultaneously, Nora is being hunted down by these demonologists. Yeah. Uh, which, when you phrase it like that, just sounds like a ridiculous television show. It really does. I mean, it sounds like something that <laughs> I, I feel like that show had like uh, Jake uh, Busey uh, and was on yeah. the, then Ray Wise and was on the WB at some point, maybe. Right. Yeah. That feels good. Or it's like some sort of A&E show that's on. Oh, yeah. Or it's like a real, like a true, quote unquote, true live show that's filmed in almost night vision exclusively and it's called yeah. like Demonologists. No, it's called Angels and Demons and it's like the last name of the family is Angel. Oh, good call. We just, Right. Sold it. We just sold that show. Yeah, it's we just made good. a bunch of money. Although uh, the the Robert Langdon guy is going to be upset. Yeah, he would be, and I can understand Damn. that. Uh, I can definitely yeah, understand yeah. that. He feels like he's got that uh, angels thing uh, and demons thing cornered, got, but got that unlocked. Yeah, you're talking about Dan Brown. Yeah, I'm yeah. talking Dan Brown. Talk I, a little Dan. Who, I, yeah, we don't, I don't need know, to talk too much. Dan. I don't want to talk about Dan Brown. Yeah, that's fine. We could skip right past the Dan Brown that's stuff. That's good. And, uh, uh, what about the dead bird thing? Can we get into that? Bird. Yeah, the dead bird. I mean, we're, we've been wondering about this. We've been wondering what the hell. Does Erica have some sort of superpower? We know some of these people either have superpowers or there's just some sort of weird wonkiness going on in this world or just, you know, inexplicable nonsense. Um, it seems like it was a one-time deal, the bird thing, but we're going to learn at the end of this episode that it has roots and it was her it was what her grandmother used to tell her this story about miracles a special place uh you know we wear the garden of eden jarden of eden which is kind of silly i think her uh, grandma liked puns more than anything yeah i think so she's like you she takes after you yes wordplay. Big, yeah big pun master antonio uh and and we, we're gonna find out that it's like if you don't believe me go bury a bird in a box and go get it three days later and make a wish and you'll see it's alive uh and erica's like that's some nonsense that's crazy uh but it works worked apparently on the day that Evie went missing and it doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work today. Uh, and she has like a pile of four or five dead birds. And it's just, I'm very happy that my wife did not see this because my wife is very defensive of all things, poultry, uh, and birds and the like. And this would have very much upset her. Well, that's interesting because, um, because, uh, the first thing I thought of when I saw this was not uh, what it ultimately ended up being. Of course, I didn't think of the, uh, I didn't invent the idea, you know, throughout. But back in Roman times, they would try to make predictions uh, in the morning, kind of a divination. I believe it was called. Uh, I don't even remember what it was called. I, but they would, you know, they would examine uh, the entrails or intestines 
of the animals, specifically often poultry, uh, and they would look at them and they would try to read those entrails and divine some prediction of future of what was happening. And that was a biblical practice. It was a practice that occurred in a lot of ancient times. Uh, it's something that it really I hadn't thought about a ton of, but uh, when I saw all those other dead birds there, I thought, oh, I've heard of people looking at dead birds and trying to discern or divine some interpretation from that before when I took Latin class. So, like, that made me think of that. Uh, and there's, you know, there's elements, I guess, of Christian mythology with the whole wait three days, and if something's still alive, then, you know, it can grant a wish or it's something true. I don't think the risen Jesus is supposed to grant most wishes, but I can see where that maybe evolved as sort of a weird spiritual offshoot uh, to Christianity or to some sect of belief. I mean, there are some sects of Christianity in Kentucky here where I live where they handle snakes. Uh, and so people are kind of weird. I saw that on a show one. You did. Was it, uh, do you think that their handling was justified or was it not? Was it off base? It was pretty good. That's good. So yeah, I mean, people do this sort of thing. I mean, it's not that weird if you really break it down to the core. It's something we've heard about in society before. It was super weird to see this on the first episode. And to be honest with you, now that we've got this kind of answered, now that we know what's up with the goat man, now that we know what's up with the wedding dress, there aren't a ton of mysteries from that first episode that I've still got flags planted on, but the the naked girls running through the forest is a big one for me, as is the scene of them riding in the car with no sound. I'm still wondering what the heck those two scenes were about and wondering if we're going to get a an answer on that. But it was interesting to see the bird come back into play here. Otherwise, you've unplanted all those flags? I think from the first episode, I've uprooted a lot of flags. I mean, it, wow. it, it, it's, it's, it's interesting because... Look, we're still looking for answers. The parents of these girls are still looking for answers. They want Erica to talk to the Department of Sudden Departures. Uh, they really just think that this is the sort of thing that should happen. I don't know if they want them to be departed. Is that your read? Um, I don't know. I mean, the fact that they have been missing for three or four weeks at this point, I guess, you know, the options are they're dead, which is, you know, tremendously tragic. Or they're departed, which is tremendously tragic. But does it come with some sort of financial benefit, maybe? Yikes. I'm, well, uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's why they would want it Is or there not. some sort of insurance thing that goes on with that? Is there somebody know. from the benefits department of the DSD who lives right next door to Erica? I really don't know. But, yeah, I thought that was weird that they seemed to be really – they had already done the questionnaire. They really wanted Erica to do it. Uh, Erica wanted no part of it. Um, I thought that's interesting because something occurred to me later in the episode where Erica gives a – and I want to jump I, I, I want to jump around only to say that – Jump around, man. Do it. Only to say that it seems to me to be interesting that you live in a world now – think about now. We live in a world where there are a lot of unexplained crimes, unexplained deaths, unexplained you know, disappearances of people. And if we had lived – if we lived in a world now where the departure had happened – I think it would be very easy for us to say, oh, well, let the mystery be like this is just yet another departure, not something for me to sit around and freak out and worry about like it's just something that happens now, uh, not what did I do wrong? Did, did they, is there a clue here? Was it kidnapping? Whatever. I can fall back on this. Well, they departed and that's that. And I don't want to hear all this other stuff. I don't want to act like it didn't happen. This is what it is. People can depart now. And right. there's no point in us continuing to pretend that it didn't happen. Like that can happen again. And I think it's interesting that thinking about that, that when, once you live in a world where people can just depart, then a kidnapping or disappearance uh, could easily be chalked up to a departure. And it might be easier from a closure standpoint. Right. Strange as it may seem for people no, to actually makes, accept it as a departure. 
a lot of sense. A lot of sense because if these girls, you know, who knows what happened to them? But if if the answer because of these questionnaires or whatever, they conclude they departed, as enigmatic as that is, it's a universally accepted truth at this point that people depart. And like, well, that's what happened. And that's so sudden and terrible and awful. But that's the answer. Uh, and so like this very mysterious enigmatic force of nature is an answer in and of itself. Yeah, and why that's fascinating, of course, is that that does provide the out. Like, so, for example, one of these other mothers, if the options were our daughter was upset with us and she ran away or she was departed, then you would much prefer option two, uh, provided that option one included that she would never come back. Right. Because option one, you start to blame yourself. You start to wonder, what did I do to cause this? Uh, could I have done something differently? But what's fascinating about that is, Option two does not provide ultimate solace. Like you see throughout this episode, especially at the end with Erica and Nora, that they are blaming themselves and that they do accept, that they do accept responsibility and that Nora especially has tried to quote unquote evolve and hide from that. But one of the, one of the things that hits her throughout this episode is that, you know, that is something that she can't really hide from, that that is something that she is still going to feel. And it's a natural feeling. Uh, and this one for her, especially is getting hammered home with a science of it. Like maybe there's something scientific about her that in fact caused this, not just her in general. Uh, and I want to definitely highlight some key moments, uh, throughout. But I think that's an interesting dichotomy. And clearly these mothers aren't exactly taking it easy. Like it's not something that's made them happy that it's a departure because Emily smells like alcohol, Josh. I know. Yeah, she does. And my, <laughs> my wife. Yeah. Your wife is named Emily. Have you taken to uh, maybe making a small clip of that and just playing it occasionally to win an argument or uh, at a oh, key yeah. moment? Cause I don't think that's a good idea. I don't, you're not suggesting I do that? No, I'm definitely not suggesting that you do that. That'd be great to just have on my phone that I just like hit a button and bleep, Emily is smelling alcohol. You absolutely can put that on your phone, Josh. I just would discourage you from doing it. Okay, well, I'll, I'll report back to you, and, and if I decide to do it, I'll let you know. Yeah, good plan. But uh, they're all, I they, know the they, couch <laughs> you can crash on for a couple of weeks, but you can't stay here forever. All right, sounds good. Do you have any stocks I could strap myself into? <laughs> I do, and I also have some stock we can make a nice soup out of. Okay, great. How about taco trucks? We could also do a taco truck. There's a great Korean barbecue one in Cincinnati. Oh, is that true? Yeah, it's fantastic, and it is true. I'd love to go. I'd love to go. Um, but but yeah, you know no, what we, else you might like more is some brisket for breakfast. Brisket. Uh, brisket for breakfast sounds great. I had brisket for dinner tonight, and guess how I had it? Guess what the vehicle for the brisket was, Antonio? Uh, the fact uh, – well, um, pizza? Yeah, it has to be, right? I mean, there's no, there's no other answer. Yeah, it's some brisket pizza tonight. It was very good. Oh, boy. That is, that is some deliciously decadent dinner. It was great. I feel a little gross right now, I'll tell you. Well, I did think it was interesting when, when he's like, is there a good place to get breakfast in this town? And yeah, sure, Nora already knows the place to get breakfast, tells him where to go, and he's eating brisket when she walks in. Brisket is not breakfast. Well, you can do it if you want to. I mean, if you're on vacation and or not on vacation, like a work trip and like no one knows and you're going to expense it. No one's really going to look at the line item and be like very judgy on <laughs> what specifically you're eating, right? I'm saying this both in terms of that's my belief and also I'm looking for validation because I'm nervous. I sense I'm, that. I understand. I'm, a, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what's going to be discovered on uh, past work trips and some that I have planned in the near you future. You had pizza at 9.30 a.m.? <laughs> Domino's was the only thing I wanted. I'm not going to Waffle House. No, I think I've walked away from Domino's for the next little while. Oh, boy. Well, uh, anyway, I would never walk away from brisket. And apparently in brisket, that in Miracle, that's the miracle, not the water. Um, I really like this conversation at the table here between the two of them. Uh, I like the lingo he's using. He's calling the people that are departed deeps. 
Yeah. You catch that? And he also yeah. uh, explains the process of people disappearing is lifted. Yeah, you lift. Yeah, the deep, lifted. The, the deeps the got deep, lifted. The deeps got lifted. No, it's great. I love the jargon. I think it's great. Uh, you know, if this was a more uh, widely viewed show, which it really ought to be, but it's not, you can imagine there being like a handbook that is like a, a DSD handbook tie-in, like a promotional tie-in would be really cool. Yeah, that is a good call. I thought or you were pamphlet, talking about even. jargon jargon. Jarden Jargon. Plan for the hashtag really early. I thought you were talking about Jarden Jargon, but you're right. It would be really cool to see these DSD documents. And um, it's it's fascinating for, to me to see the sort of things that are evolving in society. On And we're really, we only see it from afar. We see glimpses of it or we hear the questionnaire has evolved here in this conversation. And Nora, that is really piquing her interest. Like, oh, there's a new questionnaire? What do you know? And right. it's at the end of this unfortunate conversation that he tells her about lenses. She makes right. the mistake, I guess, of asking him what's been on her mind, which is that, have you heard about people causing departures? And Josh, in this moment, did you read that she has all along, since she got to Miracle, felt responsible for the departure of the girls? I think that for the girls. Um, no, I hadn't read that. You know, I, I think that... Um uh, you know, it's, that's interesting. I don't think that we've necessarily had a great opportunity to, to get that read from her. I think that she's been preoccupied with a lot of other stuff. Um, you know, she was certainly much more worried about, did she cause Kevin's departure when Kevin wasn't there after the earthquake? And you could certainly link it there. Like, did I make this happen? Did it happen again? Um, I hadn't really thought of it in connection to the girls until, uh, honestly, until you just until you just said it. Well, it's to me the only the only reason I asked you that is I didn't really get that read either. Um, and then I thought, why did she? I, I really think she had an ulterior motive in going to the breakfast place. I do think that she wanted to track this guy down. Yes, I think that was high on her list. And I couldn't come up with a lot of reasons why. Does she just want to talk shop with the guy? I don't know. The question that she asks him: Have you heard of a person causing departures? That question is sort of unrelated to what they're talking about, and it is kind of out of left field. And it does feel like she brought that agenda to bear, like she was asking on her behalf. I'm not sure if she formulated that thought or that problem or that question in the course of that conversation. If you go back and watch it, which I did, I didn't see that. I didn't sense a lot that would have fed into that. Um, so I was left to wonder if she, this is something that Nora Durst has been stewing on since the girls disappeared, that maybe she was somehow responsible for this departure that maybe her being such a negative force, you put her in her miracle town and yet what right away someone departs like that is crazy to think about. We have to keep in mind. We know Nora Durst is a woman whose whole family disappeared when she was standing right there. So of course she's going to be thinking that. And of course we had talked earlier this season, how we thought it was great that the hug may have fixed her. Like when we talked about episode three, with what was happening with Tommy uh, becoming the new Holy Wayne and everything that was wrapped up in Holy Wayne, that we thought the hug did a lot of good for Nora Durst. And while that's seemingly true, I think it's easy to forget uh, everything that Nora Durst does bring to the table in terms of uh, non-evolved baggage, if you want to call it that, uh, with everything that's happened with her family. And so this is a very natural question for her to ask. We just hadn't necessarily seen it simmering or, or bubbling up to the surface until this scene. I thought it was interesting. Yeah, I thought it was good. I thought it was good. And I think, you know, well, we, we, we saw it with the house. We saw it with the people who were saying, like, yeah, maybe you're connected to it. So it's it's certainly been on her mind, I think. But I think that, you know, she's trying to figure out how this relates to what happened to her family. Obviously, she has not let it go. 
Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, the guy showing up on her doorstep is really right. bringing it front of mind this episode. I just don't know if before this episode it's something that she'd been sitting on or not. Right. Um, well, somebody should be babysitting Lily. How about that? Somebody should be babysitting on Lily because Kevin Garvey has just left her on the trunk of his car. And Erica is not impressed about this. She's she's like, eh, this is, I don't know why you're just leaving a baby on the top of your car. Yeah, she's had a bad day anyway because, you know, right before this, she's patching up Dr. Goodhart, uh, who her husband is. Right, that's up. right. Yeah, I that, was, that was Dr. Goodhart, wasn't that it? That was, first of all, it was Dr. Goodhart. Second of all, do you think he's Australian? Uh, maybe it's possible. He's got some sort of accent. I'm not really an accent expert. Cause I didn't, I didn't pick up on another Australia connection this episode. So he would be, I guess the connection to Australia. If he is the, well, other I guess thing- the, there, there could be the lost connection through Sonia. Wall. Oh my gosh. Don't put me down that rabbit hole. Sorry, I, I, oh gosh. What's at the other end of that one? But I just did. Um, but I, you know, is it a white rabbit? I don't know. But what I would say is that, um, is that are you, are you at all tracking or are you at all thinking that this guy is in any way related to the disappearance of the girls? Well, certainly John Murphy might think so because he not only kicked the crap out of this guy, but he fingerprinted him. Uh, yeah. You know, you see, you see Goodhart has his entire hand is black with ink, uh, or, or with something, something that's going to get his full handprint. So the show is certainly asking us, or at least the show is at least telling us that somebody is suspicious of him of that. And, you know, if you, if you're looking for suspects in any sort of foul play that has roots in the first episode of the season, he would be a prime suspect. He was there at the water. He was there at the site of the disappearance. So his name is Goodhart. How easy would it be to turn that guy into a psychopath? I feel like this show isn't that obvious. And I think that there's also been a lot of um, talk about how it doesn't seem like there were signs of struggle or anything like that in this situation. So I don't know. I don't know that I... I don't know that this is going to end up being any kind of foul play thing, but if it is to become that, he is obviously a lead candidate for any sort of wrongdoing that might have occurred. Yeah, I'm, I just what I don't know is if anyone knows that he ever had an interaction with those girls. I don't know if anyone actually knows that. What we know is that he did have an interaction with them. Evie, in fact, was a little bit flirty with him and was just kind of swimming in his direction. And they were get, by Doctor Goodhart. We remember right. that, and we remember right. how he had a tent there by the water, uh, and he was just set up. He had shop set up there i don't know if anyone knew that though like i don't know if anyone knew that he had ever interacted with the girls uh i don't know how someone would have known that uh but uh, john murphy may be handprinting a lot of people he may not just have been handprinting him because he knew the girls john might have actually not made that connection so i'm looking for non-magical non-deep uh, versions of why these girls departed and it could easily be that this guy is somehow involved he is an outsider a researcher he's not from there uh he was collecting samples uh, it sounds like john beat him up just because he wanted to beat somebody up and maybe because he was selling the samples at a high price whatever uh but i think that there's a chance that this guy's a little more involved it's that could have been anybody in that scene selling water it could have been anybody getting hand printed so the guy's either there as a red herring to make us think that he's more involved with the story or he is more involved with the story all right well let's let's track that let's take one of the flags from episode one and plant it i'm, in, I'm planning it it's done in good good heart's beard yes. let's do that <laughs> uh we can just plant it right plant it right there uh, it's stuck uh, that's really weird 
it stuck. It stayed. Uh, so after after that, then then we go then we go to Erica discovering that Lily is just on the hood of the car and bringing him in, bring her in rather. Uh, and Nora, you know, confronting Kevin about it. And when she confronts Kevin about it, she catches him speaking to what appears to be no one in particular, but we know is Patty. So once again, just you know, sort of seeding the path to the big reveal at the end of the episode, which is such a great moment. I don't think that there's too much in this moment necessarily that we need to talk. About. No, she's dismissing the Scientific American article saying it's citing some carousel incident that wasn't even right. proven that it was fake. And I think it goes to show you that even the stuff that you can count on as science uh, can't really be relied on. Uh, and yeah, the incident with Kevin is rough because, as we said earlier, that's the first time we really see that that perspective from Nora's eyes, uh, and it's pretty rough. Um, they, you know, this is a, this is a good interaction between a couple though because she really lets him off the hook. You've had a lot on your mind, whatever. The interaction we see next with Erica and John is almost juxtaposed because Erica is confronting John about Dr. Goodhart uh, and basically says, you know, let's talk about this, what it is. You need to hit people because you need to hit people. And and that is, uh, that's a John Murphy character trait that is sort of just with a little bit of brevity uh, summed up there by Erica. Uh, and she sees Michael with Jill. She doesn't really say anything about that, but this scene between Erica and John is, uh, is an interesting confrontation considering what we later learn about uh, their relationship and where Erica is with it yeah i like the jill and michael thing yeah me too i have no problem with it looks good i'm shipping jekyll jekyll yeah <laughs> what, <laughs> what else would it be it could be uh the mill mill i like jekyll better i like jekyll better too yeah. so I'm, I'm shipping jekyll i like them holding hands i like how jill is like i'm going to the fundraiser with him and i'm not asking permission and Nora's like well if you'd asked i'd say he's a sweet guy and good for you yeah, it's great. Good, good stuff. Nor dirt, ride or die. Yeah, no, cool, cool mom, cool mom. I like her. She's good. Uh, but yeah, and then we're gonna get the the call from uh, from from Yes Penny's voice. Uh, she's 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 calling up and saying, "Hey, don't hang up on me." And Nora says, "All right, fine. What's up?" And she says, "Hey, this lensing thing, it's legit, and I think you're doing it. And by the way, I think you're possessed by a demon." How do you feel about this? And Nora feels like she wants to laugh and hang up on Yes Penny's voice. Yeah, and it's funny. We we hit this a little bit already, but yeah, the the divisive part of their research is that demons are involved. But the it seems almost scientifically accepted that there may be something to this lensing effect. And I'm not sure in that moment whether Nora's thinking about it. I think she's just laughing about that thing. But like I said, there is that tie to what we talked about in the season open where people that are that are you know maybe not capable of grasping everything scientifically might make up other reasons for something that happened uh, or use some existing structure uh, and try to place an unusual occurrence within the context of that existing structure. I think if Reza Aslan were here, he would talk about comets and looking to the stars and the things that people interpreted within the context of their existing myth uh, that were science uh, that they didn't understand and that they tried to find a place for. And I think this is an interesting conversation just because it draws that divide uh, where you can have something that is scientific that makes a little bit of sense but once you try to frame it in the context of some pre-existing thing that didn't account for that science that we see as fantastical it's, it's going to be laughable it's not going to make a ton of sense so right. that's where we're at with the lensing is that people are saying oh because there are lenses demons use them to make people disappear give me a break 
Right. Well, so so Azrael is, you know, a, a demon in religious lore, an archangel of death in Hebrew, according to the Wikipedias. I also believe that Azrael was Batman for a minute or two, if I'm not mistaken, back in the 1990s. Let's just let's just take this at, at let's take it at face value for a half a second. All right. All right. We can do and, that. And, you know, in our podcasting terms, half a second is probably going to be at least two minutes. Um, what if Nora Durst is possessed by a devil? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. And what's interesting about it's that really is, not a good question because that's insane. That's well, not going to happen. Well, what's interesting about it is like I think in Islam, like this person is referred to as the angel of death. Uh, if you're right. translating it, and I mean, this is somebody that is that this character or this demon is is relevant or popular in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and all the Abrahamic faiths, and uh, Sikhism, and folklore, and Batman, and all Batmanism, of it. yeah, and Batmanism. Uh, so, of course, people are going to be looking to signpost that there but uh why he would choose nora durst as his vessel i mean i think i would if i were a demon but so i understand but um but yeah i have so many questions about that but i can't make this a three-hour podcast no i can't either and so i really don't understand what's 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 really in play there i don't think there's any credence to it but um it is it's i'm glad to see nora durst get a laugh out of this because no matter how she feels or no matter what she thinks, this is this is a bridge too far. This is something that she can't take seriously. I'm not being occupied by the angel of death slash Batman. However, that being said, and I don't think that we need to linger on this too long, somebody out there believes it very hard. Yes. Believes it to the extent that they are sending Dr. Quattro out to Miracle and going through all the security protocols, such as there are any, uh, to, to get to Miracle, to pay an in-person visit to this woman who they believe may be occupied by this intense demon. So there are people who really feverishly believe it. And if they get more involved in this story, if they get drawn deeper and deeper into the mix of the leftovers, whether or not it's hokey nonsense that you that you believe or you don't, uh, it could get very intense very, very, very fast. Oh, yeah, because the, the people that are into that, the people that are focused on that, they, they bring it. I mean, they are nuts about it. And they have all their tools. I mean, I don't think we're going to end up with the Gozer the Gozerian kind of scenario here, but um, that's the level of... Uh, there is no Nora, only Zul. Yes. Yeah, all right, so I've been dating a dog. It happens, right. you know? Like, I can see that play out. Um, I can see that play out uh, in the Ghostbusters level. Uh, I don't think Nora's going to turn into a dog but you know there are people who believe that that would be bad the dogs are bad in the left yes dogs get feral and they go nuts and they have to be quarantined so we don't want that we don't want nora to have to move out of town for 60 days but yeah i i I do think that that uh it just there's a whole host of other mythology other uh stuff that is laden uh or that that you know that that brings to bear when you start talking about demons and uh possession and the devil's in you and the devil made you do it and people that really believe it and demonologists and on and on and on um this is not leftovers the conjuring like we're not going to see an i don't think uh a, a well, now that now that you mention it there's a certain similarity between vera farmiga and uh carrie coon in only the best ways yeah uh in only the best ways in that they're both incredibly talented actresses uh who don't get the no- enough do uh but what i would say is that yeah that this is a possibility i mean i don't think nora's gonna go get herself exercised but maybe that's a we already saw her pay to hug holy wayne so i guess anything's yeah. possible just wait for the season finale the exorcism of nora durst oh, that's happening gonna that's, gonna be, mind. that's gonna be amazing um so this this season just 
in general has been really great about putting you in the head of certain people. But I think that they really did a masterful job with Erica in this episode on a few occasions where we know that Erica is deaf and we got to kind of experience what that's like. There's a few moments where Erica doesn't have her hearing aids in. Um, and that's really present in this terrific scene where we finally figure out who the pie guy is. And it's not Jason Biggs, despite what you and I had thought. Uh, but there's this kid who's been bringing pies to the Murphy the pie that we saw in the first episode and a little bit in the second episode as well um, is being delivered by this kid at the behest of Virgil. But before we find out that Virgil is the sender, uh, Erica goes running after this kid and it's like a soundless thing or there's just like the, uh, the vaguest traces of sound. And I thought that this was really, really smartly done and just uh, beautifully portrayed. Yeah, it's great. And she, I think you can suspect that she kind of knew, uh, she, she, that the soundscape and the sound editing, sound editing is great there. And then she's almost immediately at Virgil's trailer, uh, with the pie, you know, throwing F-bombs at him and demanding that he provide answers and stay away from her family. Um, what do you think about what we're going? So do we, are, are, are you on the team that Virgil is one of either Erica or John's parents? Is that, is that something that you're shipping? Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about this for a while that he's, uh, that he's John's father right. and how that, that would be a mirror of Kevin and Kevin Sr. You know, we've been talking about the Garveys and, and Murphys as kind of mirror images of each other and that there's a lot. And I think that even, even, you know, the big reveal that we've, if we've talked about it at all, we've barely talked about it, that Erica was going to leave her family, uh, really echoes Lori in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, forget the, the similarities between Erica and Nora. I think that there's a lot there as well. So it's, it's made sense to us that, that John father could be Virgil, that that's who Virgil might be. I would still say we know for sure that Virgil is family at least, and my gut would be that he is John's uh, father, and we also got the confirmation that whoever this man that John tried to kill was back in the day, was the reason Virgil. why he went to prison, it seems like it was Virgil, because yeah. Michael was going to say to Eric, like, yeah, well, he didn't shoot him enough times, what's he going to do, shoot him again? Yeah. Um, so there you go. This scene is weird, because I feel like it uh, can be summed up by, who is your daddy, and what did, what did he do? Like, uh, Oh my god. Yeah, like, I do... I, who is your daddy, and what does he do? Yes, I do think that if John is... If, if, if Virgil is John's father, Father, what did he do? Like, right. what what is it that caused this kind of huge rift to the point that he says to Erica, like, I'm I am your family. Like, I'm a you know I'm a family member, uh, and I didn't know if that was to say I'm your only family uh, or I'm you know your stepdad or whatever. Uh, but she's confronting him, and she says, you know, if John found out about this, can you even imagine? Like right. John would be the one that would be more mad than me. I'm capable of coming over here and telling you to stop and stay away from my family. But if John found out, forget it. He already tried to kill you. Uh, Lord knows what would happen. And so right. thought that was interesting. I thought the connection to Erica could have been that he asked her when she was leaving, do you want a bird? Right, right, right. Why would right. he ask her? That's a weird thing to offer somebody on the way out the door, unless because, because he's been, you know, he's he's got he's had these moments. He's had these moments where he seems to be able to peer into people's thoughts. You know, he had that he had that moment with Kevin where he says, "Stop by if you want to talk about your problem." Right. Um. Who Who else did he, he said something? Sorry, sorry for what's happened to you. Maybe I think he said to somebody. I can't remember. Maybe to him. maybe to Nora yeah. or somebody in a convenience store. I remember it was it was Nora right when now. she was buying cigarettes and whiskey. Right. Right, right, right. He so I mean, like, 
we've we've seen him know things uh, or, whether or, or not, pretend to know things or pretend to know things but the bird thing is oddly specific yep. i mean you know if if he if he is her father then presumably her grandmother would be his wife and he would know about the bird story uh, uh, her grandmother would be his mother uh yes sorry yeah uh, so you know presumably <laughs> we're not in kentucky be, josh yeah uh, <laughs> it's in texas i don't know how it works uh you know it, it would be it would be very different it would be you know that that could that could be how he has that information so you know we're always trying to look for what's the logical explanation as well as what's the faith-based explanation um but maybe he just knows maybe he knows stuff this is further evidence in in that column. Yeah, that, and it's, it, to me, it cuts down on either on either direction. It could be that he is her father, or not even her father, just a relative who maybe was a grandfather or a father figure. If he was her grandfather, then that means he was married to uh, her grandmother, who was the bird lady, uh, and maybe that's the bird is the connection there. If he's John's father, that explains why Erica can talk to him, and then the bird thing is just part of his mystical "I know what people need or want" thing. So we really don't know what's happening with Virgil. Obviously, that's something to keep our eyes on. Uh, we, all we know is that this is the person that John went to jail, apparently, for trying to murder and not being good enough at. My only reason for asking all these questions is I'm trying to find suspects, as we were doing with Dr. Goodhart, uh, for the disappearance of whatever. And if, as I start to wonder about what caused uh, Erica to be so upset with, with uh, Virgil that she doesn't believe that he's owed forgiveness... There are only a few things that can really uh, play in. He could have murdered somebody that was close to her, right? Uh, but that doesn't necessarily seem to be the kind of thing that John's going to shoot about. Um, he could have molested or uh, abused somebody uh, and when they were a child. And it could have, it could have been Erica. Uh, and that could be related to why John decided that he wanted to shoot uh, him. And Erica said he doesn't deserve forgiveness. If you that, would think that she would have had a much bigger reaction to the news that her son was visiting this guy privately, if that was the case. Probably, although maybe he only was interested in girls. We don't know. Um, if that, if it were the case, uh, then it's possible he would also have been a bigger suspect uh, in the disappearance of Evie. I mean, more there couldn't be a, a closer way to put that. I, I don't know if the police are looking into that. You've got a relative, apparently, who still lives in the town who may have had this. So I don't know that that was his crime, but it's those kind of things. It's not like he refused to come to their house at the holidays. He did something horrible uh, for which John attempted to kill him, apparently. Uh, and for which the family, except for Michael, is still not interested in providing forgiveness. And so I do think that's a big uh, kind of, even as we're answering mysteries in this episode, even as we find out in classic Lindelof fashion that he is related to the Murphys, now we have another question out there. What the heck did he do? So uh, I don't know that we've got any real evidence of that, and it will be interesting to see how that plays out. Right. All right. Let's 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 move along to uh, Nora going to uh, Outer Miracle, going to see Matt out of the stocks. He's he's no longer Nakes. He's no longer in the stocks. He seems to be. This is not quite his new flock. Uh, it's not flocks flock, but it's uh, these some some people in need of some guidance. And Matt seems like he's doing fine out here. Yeah, he seems like he's rolling pretty great. Um, he's got a little bit of like the Jeff Varner thing going on with his button down, where like the sleeves the, slightly ripped the, off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it seems like he can kind of take the sleeves off and put them back on whenever he wants. He, so that's good. He doesn't. And, uh, yeah, he doesn't have to be. He's not. He's hanging out, but he's not hanging out. You know what I'm saying? Sure, I know exactly what you're saying. You're talking about his weenus. I definitely am. 
And, you know, we, we don't have much more going on with Matt in this episode other than, like, he's like, hey, you're going to take Mary to this fundraiser even though this guy has been such a twerp to us, but whatever, you know? Yeah, Nora gives him the big F you on that, and I think that's interesting because I do think that he can see through Nora a little bit and understand. Yeah, family, you know? Yep, more than anybody, I think he gets it. And she says something like, he says something like, they might think you're being hostile towards them. And she's like, why would I be hostile to the, towards them? Their, their girls just disappeared. And then he gives her a look like that's exactly why you would be hostile to him because your family disappeared and you're carrying that around with you and then she just gives him a f you matt you know what i mean and uh i love that and i also liked his line about suffering breeding compassion uh i thought that that was fascinating an, an interesting insight into what makes you know what matt's ethos is in terms of yeah. how he operates i thought that was great it's a recurring question in the episode, actually. Why would I blank? Or why would, why would I do this is something that, uh, why would I do that is something that Goodhart says when Erica is like, hey, maybe leave John Murphy out of this. Right. Uh, it's something that Erica says when Virgil says, do you want some birds? She says, why the F would I want some birds? Why the F would I do that? Why would I take a bird? And you have it from Nora here. Uh, why would I feel hostile toward them? So it's like all these people who are asking these kind of rhetorical questions questions that they probably somewhere deep inside or maybe even not that deep but just in a shallow place that they care not to look at uh they're asking these questions that i think that they know the answers to yeah it's just it's just an interesting recurring thing that's going on in the episode for sure and if uh and if you know if we see any kind of uh answers they're 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 really stilted or they're cover answers or they're people deflecting what they really truly honestly uh, maybe know deep down and don't want to admit and i think that that's interesting uh in this next scene about knowing deep down or not admitting uh in the murphy scene that we see coming up erica is trying a necklace on and john says oh you know evie always wanted that necklace she told you how much she loved it i just don't think you got it and erica's like yeah maybe i just wanted to keep it for myself and she sort of walks off on her heel she then yells at Michael for praying with Virgil. That's where right. we find out that uh, that John was the one who shot him. Shot him, yeah. I just, I mean, the things are not the. They looked pretty damn rosy in the uh, in the Murphy household in the first episode. Uh, there was a little bit of darkness with, uh, are you sure you want to work on your birthday? And we know what John was doing outside, but at least in the context of the relationship, it seemed okay. But man, they are, Erica is is almost had enough and it really comes uh, bubbling out very quickly in, in, uh, in, in short fashion here within the context of this episode. Yeah, well, speaking of problems, family problems, there's some big stuff going on with Lori Garvey. Yeah. We touched we touched on this earlier, but Nora is outside at the fundraiser, and she gets yet another blocked call, and she gives them the business, but it turns out she's not talking to uh, Yes Penny's voice. She's talking to Lori Garvey, who's looking for Tom, and we don't know what happened. You know, last we saw, it was Holy Tommy, and he was giving out hugs for freezies, and now he's MIA. Who knows what happened? Maybe him and Liv Tyler ran off together. Who knows? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people are missing understanding this scene and thinking that this call might have occurred when he was kidnapped and i just don't think that's the case do you no i don't think yeah i don't think the timelines straighten up that way it's i don't i don't know i mean i haven't looked at the map the time map i haven't looked at that i don't know what the chronology is like and i don't know is there a ton of evidence in um in the episode in the in the tom and laurie episode that it would sync up i mean i guess we do have the diner scene as an intersecting point so you could you could start there um i i took this as a scene that took place after holy tommy became a thing agree completely Um, 
And I don't know how far we'll flash back to see what happened to Tom or if the next time we see Laurie and Tom, it's going to pick up as though that had already happened and we're going to, you know, learn through information where Tommy went. Uh, I think that that's certainly within the realm of possibility, given what this show has done this season. I was sure that we were going to get the Matt flashback to how Mary had woken up that one time. We didn't get that. So who knows? Who knows what we'll get with Tom? But Tom is somewhere, whether he's with Liv Tyler, whether he is off on his own, really embracing, uh, you know, literally and figuratively embracing the Holy Tommy thing. Who knows? But Lori seems upset. Um, And she wonders if Tom is in Texas, has found Nora's phone number on the Internet, which is clever you know i for somebody who doesn't even know how to you know back up a hard drive Lori knows how to find cell phone numbers on the internet so that's good that's great yeah she's uh, smoking again that's not good smoking again that's not fantastic so uh tommy's gonna as- end up in texas i think or tommy could be in australia or tommy could be dead those are my three options i don't think okay. i don't think he departed uh like I, no i don't you know some people I mean, anytime someone disappears you know but I think this gonna, show breeds that kind of paranoia. It is true, but. and I am familiar with this from the Lost. Uh, you know, just uh, everybody's paranoid about certain answers or uh, something horrible happening, characters die, whatever. But yes, yes, I think him ending up in Texas is something we've talked about already. Seems less likely because Laurie suggested it here, but I think that that would be the kind of one of the more interesting things they could do with Tommy, uh, especially if he were to meet up with Matt outside there and outer. Outer Miracle. Um, Australia would seem like a great place for him to go. We know uh, Kevin Garvey Sr. is kind of already there. So who knows? But Tommy is missing. Lori is upset. Not good. Uh, and we'll just have to wait and see, I guess. And I think I do think when we get another episode, we will sort of pick up where that last one left off. And by the end of that episode, the chronology will be current with in terms of our Miracle timeline. All right, well, well, we'll find out, but it's an interesting thread. It yeah. was a, it was not a drop that I was expecting to see in this episode, so it was cool. Yeah, like, me neither. That was good. Um, also not expecting Nora to be such a bold badass as to steal the new questionnaire out of uh, Mr. Brevity's bag. Yeah, and then Kevin wasn't either. Kevin. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Nora is so cavalier uh, around Kevin where she's just like, what? You're in on this, right? You're good, right? It's, you know, you buried a body. What's taking a freaking file out of some dude's bag? It's fine. It's cool. What part of um, ride or die don't you get? It's great. It's great. I mean, there's really nothing more to say about that other than what a badass. Nora Durst is just killing it. Yeah. And um, she. Th- this is weird because she's killing it at a time when she's got every right to be screwed up. I mean, when she walks into this fundraiser, she tries to give him money. And they say, do you have PayPal? Um, right. There was one other time when Nora Durst was asked for her PayPal account in this series. And it was how she paid for the hug with Holy Wayne. Uh, right. And I don't think for a second that she didn't remember that when she used her PayPal account at that fundraiser. Yeah. She's uh, like, well, do I get a hug out of this? Yeah. That part? <laughs> or, or, oh, yeah. That's when I paid for that thing I thought fixed me that I'm now realizing with the with the things that are going on right now in my life that it didn't fix at all. Great. That's uh, great. So, That's a great connect. Yeah, it, it is interesting for her that she's able kind of in the moment to to keep it cool, but uh Erica is not. Uh when when what's the goat man's name? Jerry? Jerry. Hello, Jerry. Yeah, J- hello, Jerry. Hello, Newman. Yeah. When Jerry comes yeah. in, uh Erica rightfully uh loses it. This is a fantastic scene by Regina King. 
I mean, Regina King crushes this episode. She stomps all over this episode. She's so freaking good. And she's great in this scene where she's talking about, uh, you're wearing your stupid wedding dress every day. That's not going to do anything. And you're number 13 on the audiobook tour. Whoopty freaking do. La di da. Uh, yeah, she's like, Jerry, not today. Not now. Don't, don't kill Jerry. a freaking goat at my, at my daughter's fundraiser. Um, so yeah, it's, not a metaphor. It's she, yeah, she's she's lost it. She's lost it, and she's you know she's mocking the whole uh, we're the nine thousand whatever whatever. You know she's saying you know we're not spared, we're not saved. My daughter is gone. She departed. So Erica believes that her daughter has departed. That is her firm belief, and maybe that's why she doesn't want to take the questionnaire. She doesn't want to confirm it. Maybe she wants to believe that she could still be out there, but she says it. She says my daughter is gone. She departed. And then she uh, she hauls ass out of there. Yeah, and she hits out at John for letting that happen, which I think is great. I think from a continuity standpoint, a lot of people would be like, well, if there are no miracles in Miracle, how come all this other stuff goes on on a daily basis? And John is totally cool with it. She hits out at him. That's great. As we said earlier, she kind of falls back on the departure. Uh, maybe, like as a, a – listen, that answers it for me. It's easier for me to believe that she departed uh, than that she ran away from me or that some horrible crime happened. Uh, I'm okay and comfortable with being in the, in this realm. Um, and that's fascinating because the next scene, Nora's knocking on her door and Nora right. says, you're scared to find out that this questionnaire is going to reveal that your daughter didn't depart. And right. that's when I first, it, it, it really hit me that, okay, she maybe is falling back on the, my daughter has departed as a comfort, which is insane to think about, but totally believable in that world. Um, it's much easier to believe sky cake. It's much easier to believe in things that you have to take truly on faith than it is to sit down and try to analyze, uh, the reality of the situation. And I think that that's tough uh, for everyone. So it's, it's fascinating to see this playing out in a town where people haven't previously departed. The other mothers want to let the goat be sacrificed. Erica wants no part of it. Uh, right. she instead wants wants Nora in her house with that questionnaire uh, and that, you know, people that are using the crutch, uh, that, that the departure is a crutch to explain other mysteries. Um, maybe we're going to ask these questions. And that's when we find out, of course, in this great scene, there's so much to unpack. But, I mean, we've talked about it a ton already. They, they both crush it. Um, Erica was going to leave John, uh, as we find out. And when that fact is sort of revealed through the question about how much money she'd uh, withdrawn from a bank account, it really knocks Nora Durst on her ass. Yeah. Uh, and it's, I think it's because, you know, Nora was in a very similar situation where her marriage was in a bad place and where maybe she wanted to get away from her marriage and she wanted some time just for her. I'm fairly certain in that episode, uh, the Garvey's at their best. Nora has the interview with the mayor and she's interviewing for the job. And she said something to the effect of, as far as you're concerned, until this campaign's over, I don't have a family. Right. Uh, and that's where she wanted to be right at that time is she wanted that. And so I think it's fascinating to think about that when she hears Erica kind of articulating the same things in this great scene, she really starts down the road where it's hard for her to come back. That and the word lenses sets her off. Um, some of these new questions really throw her for a loop. I don't know. That, what, what are your takeaways from this scene? Because it's fascinating. Well, I think that, you know, we, we hit on something interesting a minute or two ago with, um, you know, Erica wanting it to be a departure because maybe that's an answer. But the other piece of it is it feels like Erica really believes that she wished her daughter away with the bird. Uh, 
with the bird. Right. You know, she, t- she talks about the story of the bird and the bird in the box and it actually happened. Um, you know, she put it in there for, for three days and it, it flew away. And the wish that she had made was that my children would be all right without me. Michael's got faith, so he'll figure it out. He'll get it. But Evie wouldn't understand. She would not understand why I left. And so she's thinking, so the bird that happened one day and then the next night Evie was gone. You know, she's thinking I did this and how much more comforting is it that like I wished Evie away via, you know, mysterious universal departure or I wished Evie away by like, I don't know, getting abducted and killed. Uh, so I think that that could be a big part of why she would hope that Evie has been, you know, has departed rather than anything really darkly nefarious. Sure. Sure. Um, but, uh, but I think beyond that, you know, the, the Nora freaking out, it's, it's a reflection and, you know, it's again, it's the correlation is not causation thing, but she is being told by numerous people throughout this season that there was something unique about her situation and why her family all disappeared. And after a while, you can be told correlation is not causation so many times, and eventually you're just going to still feel like you were the thing. Um, even if it can't be outright proven, it just feels like you were the inciting incident. And I think that she is, you know, saying all of these things toward Erica that are very, very hurtful and words that you cannot walk back easily, at least if ever. It's pathetic. Um, she says it's pathetic. I She's evolved. Talking- I'm better than yeah, you. She I, says, basically. Yeah, I evolved. And it's, you know, it's Nora, Nora going hardcore. Yeah. Um, so, you know, she's really hitting the nuclear option. And I think that it's a reflection on herself. And that's why Erica is able to break her so easily because it's such a thin facade yep. uh, that, you know, it really is, you know, Erica's words of uh, what were your what were your last words to your departed children are a rock through the window that shatters Nora. Yeah. Cause uh, you know, it, do you remember what her last words were? No. Do you? Yeah. Uh, her daughter spills the juice on her iPhone and she says, God damn it. I said two hands. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it sucks. That <laughs> sucks to be reminded of. That sucks that that's how it, how it went down. Um, so, you know, there's, there's all of that. There's all of that at play. I think that, I mean, we, we, we now know this big piece of the puzzle with Erica that she was going to bail on John and the family, and we still don't know why. Um, so that's TBD. That's a really interesting wrinkle that is very, very against everything I think that we thought we knew about Erica. We'd been calling Erica ride or die with John Murphy as well yeah. with the way that she sewed him up, no questions asked, when he was shot in the gut. Yeah. Um, and she was just going to cheese it. Yep. Where was she Where was she going to go? Why was she leaving? What was that all about? So no answers right now. I don't know if you've got if you've got clues that you're tracking plants that uh, plants that you flagged is what I was about to say. Yes, I've been any, flagging plants. I know you have, but any any flags that you've planted in that regard, I don't know that there's much on the table no, yet. No, we'd have to, we'd have to go back and really comb over things. But this was a real blindside, and I'm excited to see what it's all about. Yeah, um, it, it's great. Alex Coons on post show recaps had posted uh, where does this scene uh, rank in terms of all time best scene centering on two female characters. Alex said hard to think of a more intense emotional and well acted scene and i think that that's true this is a fan fantastic scene uh between two female characters the way it's shot how it gets closer in both of their faces 
Right. Really see it held tight. Uh, and how again, really, really in their heads in this episode. Absolutely. And one of the things that's fascinating to me, uh, is that Nora just clearly, as you said, the facade is not that deep and she clearly feels very guilty over still what happened with her family. In some ways, she is the, the reminder, the living reminder, the guilty remnant. Uh, and she's carrying that guilt with her, uh, just on her sleeve such that, Erica only needs to ask one question. Did your kids die or did they depart? And when right. she finds out they departed, she understands right away, you're dismissing me and my kid and the potential departure there and all the possible connections and correlation and causation and all of it because you don't want to feel guilty about what happened in your life. And I can see right through that. She turns it around on her. It's all so perfectly performed, as you were saying, um, about about the things that I was just talking about. Like we're totally on the same page that Erica did see right through that and and she was able to break that down with some of those lines uh carrie coon is fantastic so Uh, good all of that is so good and you think to yourself like is there is there any way that this uh even though nora's bedside manner was so horrible and even though we got the great story about the birds in the box and the answer to all of that uh is there any way that they can top that scene and the answer is not really but man they come close with that last scene the next one it's it's a great scene, this this moment where Kevin reveals finally to Nora that I've been seeing someone phrasing yeah, Kevin Phrasing Harvey. Kevin, hello. <laughs> phrasing, phrasing. Uh, but I've been seeing Patty ever since, you know, we found Lily and ever since we, we left, I thought that leaving would get rid of her. It hasn't. And by the way, Patty is telling me it's really bad that I've told you about her, that I just made a big mistake, which flies in the face of, Patty. of, of what Patty had said previously. I guess, or maybe not. I mean, Patty never says like, uh, well, you should tell her about me. She just says, you must not love her very much because you haven't told her about me. So this is a declaration of love in a big way yeah. uh, between Kevin and Nora. So that's a positive. But maybe, you know, the other piece of what Patty, you know, didn't say was, um, and also, by the way, don't ever tell her about me, you know, because that, that, really, that really would be bad. Um, so, so yeah, that's intense. Uh, yeah, very, uh, very intense. And it's very intense that, um, the way that that all just really plays out because it ends with Erica returning the rock. Uh, and that's really just not a very pleasant thing for, for to happen to anyone. And Erica immediately puts it together with that rock and throws it back. And that's pretty awesome. Uh, yeah, that's just, it's just really intense. The music is swelling. Uh, yeah, this is a declaration of love. I thought it's really funny, um, that Kevin, uh, you know, initially when he's sitting there waiting for Nora to walk in, Nora thinks he's going to talk to her about the questionnaire. Uh, do we have to do this tonight? Can't we right. do it tomorrow? Uh, right. and you know, this is not what I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about how screw, have you noticed how I've been losing my mind is basically what he says. And I think that, it's so, I mean, uh, yeah, listen, Regina King and Carrie Coon deserve every accolade for this episode, but we can't, I, I can't, I got to say Justin Thoreau in this moment with his vulnerability that he was showing, really, really great stuff. I love where Kevin Garvey is right now as a character uh, in terms of emotionally, and I thought this was a fantastic scene with that. Yeah, I mean, this was a great comment from R. Philly who just said, how sad does Kevin seem to you guys? He seems so lost and broken in this season. Um, and the guy, he's just really breaking my heart. And yeah, uh, top-notch work from Justin Thoreau. It, it's the kind of thing of like when you, when you've done some, when you feel like you've done something wrong and you're owning up to it and like you don't know how to articulate it. That's like sort of the way that Kevin talks about this when it's really, 
you know, there's elements of the Patty thing that probably he shouldn't feel great about, but a lot of it seems to be, or much of it, if not all of it, seems to be out of his control. And so the way that he is holding on to some guilt in the way that he reveals this information to Nora is really beautifully, beautifully played. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's it's really up in the air how this plays out going forward. Patty says uh, she she's telling me that I just made a big mistake, and that's punctuated with a new rock that sails through the window. Right. And that's like one of the biggest jump scares this show has ever offered up uh, is the rock going through the window, and you don't know what that's going to be. And it turns out that it's Erica just returning the favor to Nora. Looking mad as, uh, as yeah. any part of the world. That was fantastic. Yeah, and, yeah it was good. Yeah, it, it's true. It, it's, it is fascinating that Kevin was keeping a little bit behind Behind. It's like you always want to keep up appearances for the people around you that you're that you're that you've got together that you're there for them that you know you're okay that all these things are happening and it seems like with Kevin uh, he can't keep up appearances anymore she walks in on him talking to himself he's left the baby outside uh, he's disappeared in the middle of the night he's being handcuffed to the bed he can't complete coitus like there's no point in hiding anymore like I need to talk to you about this you've told me you can tell me anything and you can handle it it's just a really bad time for Nora because she's been trying to keep up her appearances and donate right. money to the Murphys and show up to their fundraiser when all along they've been a great source of emotional pain and anxiety for her. Uh, and this is a really bad time for Kevin to drop this bomb on Nora Durst. And, you know, I don't know. This is a woman who hired prostitutes to shoot her. That's right. Feel some pain. I don't yep. know where we're going to go with Nora Durst. She's got a brother outside pretty close by, but he's a little bit of a, a lunatic. So I don't know. Is she going to end up in the stocks by the end of the season, John? Oh my God. Oh my God. I mean, that seems like a preferable outcome to some of the other things you could think about. You could think about Nora not making it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a big mistake. I made a big mistake by telling you about Patty. What the frick? You know, like, where does that go? Yeah. Uh, is that, is that lights out Nora? Is that where we're headed? You know, I freaking hope not because Carrie Coon is such an all-star. She's a real MVP on this show. So I don't want to catastrophize too much. I don't want to will that into existence, but it's scary. It's a very, a very ominous ending and a really, uh, a really, an um, incredible ending to an incredible episode of television. And it's as that AV club headline suggests, this show is kicking the crap out of all other shows right now. Leftover season two. This is, you know, this is mystical stuff at play and Damon Lindelof, whatever points he lost with people in some of the other projects he's done, you know, there's still four episodes to biff the landing, I guess, but these six episodes have been magical for me, and I've just, I've been loving this ride so much. Speaking so- of biffing the landing and magical episodes, because I agree with everything you just said, um, are you going to be upset if when John opens that birthday gift from Evie, it's the cricket that he was looking for and it's still alive? Um, that'd be interesting. I wouldn't be mad. I wouldn't be mad at that. I mean, I, I, it's, I think it's pretty clearly the cricket. It's gotta be the cricket is in there. And, but it's um, gotta be dead too, right? Except for sometime you, you find a horrible bird who's on death's right. door and, you know, you put it in a box and outside of all expectations of science and nature, it's still alive three yep. days later. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it would be a miracle if the cricket was, was alive. Uh, though, frankly, for John, maybe he would view it as a miracle that the cricket was dead. Yes. Uh, so, so it could go. It could go either way. Anyway, there's so there's so much so much to talk about on this show. We could honestly podcast for you know 24 hours straight. We got to cut it. Let's here. wrap it up. Uh, let's wrap it up. Anything else from the episode? Are you good? No, I literally the cricket in the box was the only other thing yeah. that was in my notes, and I think we really hit it. It, uh, you know, you'll link to those articles. I think that are already out there about uh, the fantastic. 
performance by Regina King uh, in yep. that AV Club article. Um, and let us know. Please go to our page at postshowrecaps.com. Give us your feedback. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. I'm happy to jump in there and keep talking about this. So yeah. if you have any questions we didn't answer, any thoughts, jump in there, let us know, and we'll definitely respond. You can also reach out to us on Twitter. Yeah, reach out to us on Twitter. Antino is at AC Mazzaro, two Zs, one R. Did I get that right or did I just screw that up? Two I don't Z's, even know where one I am R, in. baby, all the oh way my home. God. AC Mazzaro. It's, yeah, it's at Jim Jones. is <laughs> 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 Antonio's Twitter handle. Uh, I'm at Round Howard. Hashtag, we've got some options. Batmanism is on the list. Uh, yes, Penny's voice is on the list. Jarden Jargon is on the list. Jarden Jargon is on the list. So any one of those. Shoot us one of those, yeah. Any one of those three, if you tweet that at Antonio and I, we will know that you got to the end of this thing. One more programming note. I I am going to be away for next week's episode. Departed? Of, I'm going to be suddenly, I'm suddenly going to be, I'm getting lifted. I'm taking a lift. I will be out of town. I will be out of pocket for next week's episode. So the great AJ Mass is going to fill in for me on next week's episode of The Leftovers. And we know that AJ is a huge fan of the show, has read the book, The Leftovers, has wanted to get on here and talk shop uh, about this show and about this fantastic season. So he's going to get the chance to do that while I am gone. So you will still get a great Leftovers podcast next week. And frankly, you've got the ace guy here. Antonio is going to hold it down. So it's going to be good. I'll do my best. Um, so you'll do you'll do your best. AJ will be great. Can't wait to listen to that. Let us know what you thought of this episode in the comment section on postshowrecaps.com. Subscribe to what we're doing, postshowrecaps.com slash leftovers iTunes. Antonio, I'll talk to you again sometime in the future. Peace out, my brother.